0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Hello and- And welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A here at Stein Online. I am not, if you can't tell yet, well, if you can't tell, there may be a bigger problem right now. But I am not Mark Stein. This is his Canadian compatriot, Andrew Lawton, filling in, very happily so, seizing the microphone, the coveted guest host for the permanent guest host, as we answer your questions from around the world, wherever it is you are. And in keeping somewhat with the tradition here, I wanted to uh, tell you that where I am in London, Ontario, it is just after 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, but it is Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock in Baker Island, 11 a.m. in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Heading on over to Managua, Nicaragua, the fun place to say. It's uh, Wednesday at 2 in the the afternoon. And uh, where else do we have? We can uh, skip across the Atlantic and find in uh, Goose... Well, we're not uh, totally across the Atlantic because in Goose Bay, uh, which is a part of Canada, I believe, still, Justin Trudeau hasn't given it to China just yet. It is uh, 4 o'clock. And then when we get uh, across the Atlantic, we uh, skip right on ahead to Wednesday evening in Dublin where it's 8 o'clock and uh, Vienna, one of my favorite cities in the world, 9pm nice uh, late dinner hour there perhaps, and what else do we have going on in Kiev I can't. I didn't take the uh, full inhale to give the proper pronunciation but it is uh, 10 o'clock in the evening there and skipping way ahead, uh, a nice little 11pm in Mogadishu coming up to Thursday morning 3am in Hanoi 4am in Perth, and And in Wellington, it is Thursday morning at 9 o'clock. So good morning to the New Zealanders in our midst, and welcome to you all. It's always good to uh, talk to you here. I always enjoy doing the guest hosting, and I try to uh, not be an East Coast supremacist. So I always give uh, tribute in a way that Mark never likes to, to those of you on Pacific Times and other pre-Eastern time zones. But uh, nevertheless, the time zones notwithstanding... It is uh, quite an interesting day. Now I'm coming to you from Canada as uh, usual, though not always. I once did this from, I believe it was Albania or was it Kosovo? No, it was Albania. I had been in Kosovo, but I I did it from Albania. Uh, So we've done the guest hosting from myriad locales around the world. But uh, what's interesting is that the global story right now, certainly as it pertains to Israel and anti-Semitism, is one that is looking all too common wherever you are so I suspect there will be some questions about that I believe there may have also been a, a question I I try not to cheat ahead of time but I, I think someone emailed me to tell me they had written a question and that was why I got a, an inadvertent sneak peek about the uh, decision by the UK court today in uh, about the Rwanda resettlement plan, and actually UK politics has been quite interesting this week. Suella Braverman wrote one of the more uh, lovely ministerial resignation letters that I have ever seen. Well, not lovely if you are Rishi Sunak on the receiving end of it, but it was certainly refreshing to read, even though I am not a Brit, but uh, we'll get to all of that and more. Uh, George Pereira writes, Andrew, the great and glorious leader of the free world, my bad, I meant resident Brandon, spits on the ground in disgust. Will be groveling in front of Resident Z and uh, Xi, I guess I should say, and besides collecting his 10%, we'll be looking to have China reduce the amount of fentanyl they help Mexico smuggle into the United States so that instead of fentanyl killing 100,000 people a year and destroying the lives of everyone around the world, the uh, 100,000 number will be a little bit lower. This is being viewed, if it happens, as a great accomplishment for the resident. What's wrong with this picture? So uh, Xi Jinping is in... My, my Apple Watch just gave me a notification that uh, the, apparently the sound in this environment is too loud for my hearing. So I guess I'm being chastised for speaking too loud. My my own voice is harmful to my health, my, uh, my watch is telling me. This is the uh, great thing about wearable technology, but uh, I'm just a cyborg now. Uh, th- this is a, an interesting question, though, that uh, you ask, George. And I, I hadn't been reading as much about the drug angle, but I, I was reading about the climate angle, and I think both are interesting here, is that, you know, Xi Jinping, who I saw an interesting tweet today, was was admonishing people for calling him President Xi. They're saying you should actually just use the name that he's called in Chinese. Use chairman. It's both accurate and doesn't legitimize his authoritarian grip on power. So uh, Chairman Xi has... Uh, did, done this rather remarkable thing. He's presided over this vast expansion of the Chinese state and its geopolitical clout and its economic clout. He's presided over China uh, basically colonizing the developing world, engaging in this debt trap uh, diplomacy to buy up all of these you know little tin dictatorships and poor countries around the world. And he he's done this all with a remarkable level of indifference. From the West, and you know, every now and then you you get the obligatory finger wagging from a Western leader that uh, you know does lip service to, oh well, we don't like how you're treating the Uyghurs or whatnot but really uh, it comes with no real pushback so china's rise comes along with this global capitulation china has managed if you recall from uh, you know previous editions of the mark stein show the you know chinese penetration segment which was always a, an easy one to put together because there was there were always so many different stories of Chinese penetration not just you know Eric Swalwell and Fang Fang but uh, people from you know universities and governments and corporate institutions and media outlets and all of this and it was so easy to find one more example because China has just walked all over the West so you bring it now to this context where Xi Jinping shows up in San Francisco And he gets this red carpet treatment from the United States, flying, you know, Chinese flags as the motorcade drives down the street. And the response that you get from U.S. officials as to why China is being treated so well is because, oh, well, they're going to be partners in the climate fight or they're going to be partners in the battle against fentanyl. So China, which is literally killing people all around the world it's literally killing more Americans through its drug exports than I would say probably much of the domestic drug supply in America is although that's not you know a a number I'm uh, sharing in anything else other than sort of my own speculation but uh, China yeah as George says is not really going to do anything about this because it knows it, it doesn't have to And it's quite fascinating when you get these people like John Kerry and Antony Blinken and Joe Biden who are so one track minded they're, they're I mean Joe Biden I mean once he gets his 10% for the big guy I really don't think he he cares much about anything else but uh, but even then you know if, if he does care about a policy it's that you know he's been for 5 minutes roused from his slumber to say what he needs to say on climate change and uh, his only real opinion on China is you know are they saying that they're going to help us in the fight against climate change so what's happening here is China basically gets to have all of its sins forgiven if it can just like hold its act together for five minutes to agree to whatever stupid joint statement they've already agreed to on drugs or climate, and then they carry on doing exactly the same thing they were doing ahead of time, and they get to repeat this process time and time again. So uh, the U.S. is going to say, oh, yes, we had a very frank discussion, and we brought our concerns right there, and we talked tough, and then nothing will change, and China will go back to buying up the world, and in the cases of uh, the drugs, killing those around the world it's not something that we really have anyone in the world prepared to deal with and and you know Donald Trump whatever his faults uh, was actually unafraid to call out the elephant in the room which was China so I, but even then I, I'm not convinced he really did anything about it and you know that's because you know China has basically been given just a, a free and l- lengthy runway here uh, Chris Davies writes Andrew I hope you're well thank you Chris I, I hope you're well also although I will say I came down I was at the Arc forum in London a couple of weeks back and I guess it was about a was it a week ago or 2 weeks ago I can't remember now it was 2 weeks ago and I I caught something there so I I actually had quite a, a nasty nasty cold that I I'm still mildly recovering from and I think the 10 minutes I've been hosting so far has been like more uh, speaking time for me than I I've had in the last week and a half and it's already getting to me so If I take a prolonged water pause in the middle, that's why. It's probably not a technical glitch. But uh, other than that, I am well, Chris. The WHO pandemic treaty is gathering pace like a snowball going down a particularly snowy hill, further undermining the integrity and relevance of the nation-state, already weakened by rampant multiculturalism. How far away do you think we are realistically from the Schwabian vision of one world government. It seems to me to be much closer than many are aware of. Uh, keep well. Thank you, Chris. And I'm actually going to take that water break right now, if you'll uh, bear with me here. So, it's interesting that you mention the Schwabian vision, because I, I saw uh, just this morning a clip of Klaus Schwab that I hadn't seen before. It was an interview he did, I think it was seven years ago, and I was gonna—I thought it was new because I, I had not seen it, and I'd, I've spent far too much of my life apparently looking up these things. I, I don't usually see ones that I haven't come across before, but it was a, an old interview he did on Swiss television. And Well, seven years ago, I guess, is old-ish in the the media climate. And he was speaking very remarkably uh, candidly, as he always does, about his vision. And he said, you know, full transparency is the goal here. He said, that's basically the society we're moving towards, full transparency. He was talking about banking and finance specifically, but he kind of just generalized it. And then gave that old comment that you often hear from people that have no respect or regard, for privacy rights, which is that if you've got nothing to hide, this shouldn't bother you. And I watched this and kind of just shrugged in a way because you know everything it's that old Maya I think it was a Maya Angelou line you know when people show you who they are believe them Uh, Klaus Schwab has shown the world many times over who he is and what he's about and what he wants and what his vision is and you've got people that are just completely ignorant and say it's all a conspiracy theory and there's nothing to it Uh, many of those people are are just you know so deluded into thinking there's nothing there or others are actually you know active participants of this vision and want to dismiss it because it's easier to dismiss it and pretend it's not real than it is to defend it. But he has said time and time again what it is that he wants, who he is, and what his vision for the rest of us is. And world leaders have been far too eager and willing to go to the foothills of, uh, well, go to the mountains, I guess, and kiss the ring. And they've done this time and time again because for the most part, it's become a, a very effective racket. And, you know, the most charitable, the most charitable interpretation of what happens in Davos is that it's this very large opaque cash for access fundraiser where you've got big corporate money, combining with a big political power behind closed doors in a way that has little to no accountability or transparency. And it's ironic that Schwab is uh, pushing this vision of total transparency because if you have nothing to hide, there's nothing to fear when so many of the discussions that take place behind closed doors at Davos are not actually available or accessible to the public. Sure, lots of the policy discussions and panels are, but these weird multilateral meetings that the World Economic Forum hosts, despite not being an international or intergovernmental organization, are unannounced and they take place uh, behind closed doors. Closed doors, where the prying public eyes are unable to go. So this this vision of a world without borders for the elites is very much what the WEF wants. In fact, you know the WEF was one of the big boosters initially of a global vaccine passport, and they actually had thrown their weight behind this one particular initiative that some you know like global nonprofit had covered had had um, had kind of established. And they were trying to push this and get countries to buy into this. And ultimately, countries didn't because countries were happy to, you know, do their own uh, corporate welfare programs and give their own preferred vendors contracts to make these vaccine passports. So the WEF vaccine passport never really became a thing, but we got that kind of vision out of it anyway. And why that's relevant is because Klaus Schwab has influence and power, not because he's there pulling the strings On these world leaders but because he's put forward an ideological roadmap that all of them want to take up either of their own volition or because they desperately want to be a member of this club that he's established and I think that's you know the sort of the Justin Trudeau and the the Tony Blair and the Nick Clegg and and all of these you know otherwise unimpressive people that find some level of, of purpose and relevance at Davos and I've told the story in the past, but one of the interesting things about the World Economic Forum is that they are very good about treating insignificant people as though they're very significant. So the security there is is obviously astronomical. And a lot of it is the, you know, the Swiss Canton police, and they have their own contract security and all of that. But when you go there, you'll like look across the street and you'll see, someone with like surrounded by, you know, this, uh, you know, legion of, you know, six, you know, police officers, this, you know, phalanx of, you know, protective uh, guards. And you're like, oh, wow, this must be important. And you go over there as I did at one point, because I was like, you know, I had my microphone in hand and I was ready to, you know, ask a, you know, tough hearted hitting question to whomever it was. And it was Nick Clegg who, is like a nobody now. He's like some you know lo- mid-level executive at Facebook, but you know at the time, uh, you know years years ago, he was the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. So he's a former almost somebody. And he was getting this, like, significant protective detail at Davos. And, and there were other examples of that, too, where you see someone that, like, you assume is important, but it's not. But, but this is part of what, you know, the WEF does. They kind of just feed into these very worst impulses of people, and they create this technocratic class. And, and this is the same group that is responsible in so many ways for this pandemic treaty because this is the group that wants a level of global governance. And, you know, if, if there's a one world government, which I, I don't think is going to happen, it's a lot more transparent than what we're getting, which is uh, instead the illusion of different and d- discrete sovereign state governments that are actually singing from the same songbook. And, and that's the, the bigger problem of a lot of these you know pandemic treaties and a lot of these global compacts and whatnot, is that you, you have countries that are basically surrendering their sovereignty, surrendering their state and domestic policy agenda to this globally sourced, globally developed one. And on public health, I think that's a, a profound, profound failure, but it's one we're, we're seeing more of. And, and this pandemic treaty is going to be one in which uh, civil liberties will be the first casualty Okay. And all of these mechanisms that it took governments a a fair bit of time to put together in COVID are going to be very quickly mobilized the next time around when something like this comes up. So I'm afraid I I can't answer the question of how far away it is. I I think there are going to be little glimmers of hope, but I think it really is incumbent upon the nation state to stand up against this and for uh, individual countries to elect people that are going to resist this because, again, the power and influence of these things only only comes when you have world leaders that are prepared to cede their agenda to them. So if you have a government in, you know, Canberra or in Ottawa or in Washington or in London, wherever, that is saying, uh, you know, this is actually not our agenda. This is not what we're going to go ahead with. Uh, They really don't have a mechanism to uh, impose these things on people. So uh, that's where I remain just uh, ever so slightly an optimist on these things. I I thank you again, Chris. Uh, There is a question from David Smales here, he says, Hi Andrew, it seems likely that Jewish people will again be intimidated in London this weekend while the police stand and watch and Sunak sits on his hands as always. Do you agree that the Prime Minister's failure to protect British citizens is the most damning part of Suella Braverman's vitriolic but forensic resignation letter? Uh, that, that's a very nice way of describing it. Now, I, so just, I, I'll, I'll say on, on two points here. The first is the likelihood of, of a return of the protest here. We had in the UK, I, I believe the estimates I've seen were 100,000 people come to the streets and protest against Israel. Now, you can never generalize... 100,000 people based on the actions of a handful. But uh, to say it is an overwhelmingly anti-Israel protest, I don't think is a generalization not rooted in fact. I will not say that every single one of the 100,000 was anti-Semitic. I won't say that every single one of the 100,000 was pro-Hamas or was pro-terror. But the general sense was that this was a, a protest motivated by an opposition to and a resistance to Israel. Now, I am a free speech absolutist, so I take a very broad view of what free speech should be, which means I've had a larger tolerance level than many people on the right when it comes to what displays should be accepted, and I mean accepted in a strict legal sense, not in a a moral or societal sense, uh, even as we see rampant and mounting anti-Semitism. I do not believe censorship is the answer. But I believe it is fair to ask the question of where these sentiments come from, and more importantly, where these people are coming from. And I don't think it's particularly surprising that where you're seeing the largest displays of this nature are countries that have completely given up on anything resembling values-based approaches to immigration. The places where you're seeing the largest and most forceful demonstrations against Israel are places like the UK and countries like Europe, which have allowed mass migration and have allowed, basically, uh, people that they know are coming to the country without really respecting or regarding all that favorably the lone democracy in the Middle East or democracy in general— or free speech and pluralism. They, they know that these are the people that are coming in. So I think when you look at this, the answer The answer is not, we must shut down these protests, which I I understand the impulse. And if you're a a Jewish person seeing people in the streets celebrating violence against you, I understand why that may be your emotional response. But I look at this and say, the problem is there because the failure has already taken place. There's no solution that's going to solve this when the problems have already gotten so out of hand in the first place. And I mean, this really ties into the whole migration thing that's happening in the U.S. You have in the or in the U.K. rather, you have uh, Rishi Sunak, who on one hand was trying to talk tough or pretend to talk tough and saying we're going to turn the boats around of all these migrants that are turning up at Dover, and has failed to do that. The U.K. does this one plan, which was actually, as far as all the other options, a reasonable one, which is that Rwanda has agreed to take these asylum seekers there. Rwanda has said, you know what, we're going to be helpful we're going to take these people give us some money we'll sort them out and they'll have a home here where they won't they won't be persecuted and the, today the uk court uh, i forget which you know court it is but the uk court decided that this was a violation Of their rights. That it was not actually a safe place to send them. The government was not within its right to develop this program. So uh, the government has claimed that it's going to find a way through this. It's going to make the necessary amendments and proceed and I'm sure the court will strike that down as well and and will again go to where we are now, which is not a single migrant uh, or asylum seeker being sent off to Rwanda. Despite Rwanda saying, we will take them, we will accept them, we are fine with this. And the problem here is that there is no real willpower. There's no real willpower to sort this out. Now, I have a lot of misgivings about the way that the United States governs its immigration file. But there is something about the U.S. which you can argue with uh, as far as being kind of successful, which is that if you want to get onto a plane to the United States of America from, you know, pretty much any major airport in the world, certainly any Canadian airport, you're going through United States customs before you get into the terminal. You go through security, you go through customs, and then you get your, you're accepted into the United States before you've ever left the soil of the place that you are, uh, the the place that you were going to the U.S. from, so this actually gives the U.S. a fair bit of control over its migration because you can't just turn up at you know Boston Airport or JFK as easily and say, okay, I'm I'm here to seek asylum, and at which point you're the United States's problem because you can't actually you aren't actually there to make that claim in the first place. And and that's why the UK and Italy are so completely handcuffed by what's happening right now is that by the time the people have turned up and made the claim, they're already the problem of that country. It's the same as what's happened in Canada where you had a a steady stream of illegal border crossers for years, just like walking across the border into Quebec from New York and doing so without regard for the law. Uh, My favorite photo or I think it might've been a video is when like the RCMP are literally helping these illegal border crossers with their bags the police are carrying their bags for them as they illegally enter the country and then they are told okay you've entered this illegally we're going to arrest you and then they get released and sent to some place and given a date for a hearing in several months and they vanish and, and that's that and this was basically the story of immigration in Canada for the last four or five years and what's happening in Supposedly, sovereign nation states who have one chief responsibility, which is to secure the territorial integrity of your state, protect your borders. Because if you can't protect your borders, you can't actually do anything to ensure the safety and prosperity of the people who are born in your country, who are citizens of your country. If you don't protect borders, citizenship actually does not mean anything. So, all of these leaders. Conservative, liberal doesn't really seem to matter. In the UK, the US, Canada are disgracefully and shamefully neglecting what is supposed to be their core and primary responsibility. So Suella Braverman, who, by the way, I I don't believe is as squeaky clean as she claims here. I, I believe that perhaps she was limited in what she's been able to do by Rishi Sunak, but she's also not gotten the actions done. She's the minister on this file, or was, up until this week, the minister on the file, and she has not delivered results. So I think that, you know, yes, it's easy to make her a bit of a hero because of her parting shots to Rishi Sunak. But she has not done anything to stop the boats. Sunak didn't do anything to stop the boats. Liz Truss, in her, you know, three minutes as prime minister, didn't do anything to stop the boats. No, even conservative government in the UK has done this. I mean you would have a better job I think just sending some volunteer out there to turn them away and like to wave them away than anything that His Majesty's government uh, has uh, tried to do in this regard. Uh, Timothy McDonnell writes, I think the policy proposal of a one-state solution in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would lead to the death or removal of virtually every Jew in Israel. As the Palestinians have 460 million Arabs worldwide, they can use to create another 15 million Palestinians to overwhelm the Jewish vote. Thus, I am a strong supporter of a two-state solution. However, I have always disagreed with the settlement program After the Six-Day War of 1967, on the grounds that it puts Israel in a position of occupier and naturally will lead to violence, the buildup of ethnic resentments. With the settlements and occupation unilaterally removed and sovereign state status given to the West Bank and to the Gaza Strip, the lion's share of worldwide disapproval would be moot. Going forward, however, for every rocket launched at Israel, Israel will seize one square kilometer from the attacking territory and will remove all inhabitants from the area and repopulate the area with Israelis with a new border wall protecting the area. You've given this a lot of thought, Timothy. The Gaza Strip is 365 square kilometers. The West Bank, 5,655 square kilometers. The Shiite areas of southern Lebanon are about 3,500 square kilometers. Suddenly launching 100,000 rockets at Israel becomes a pathway to the loss of an awful lot of real estate. Why do you think Israel has dragged its feet in unilaterally removing the settlements and recognizing the Gaza Strip and the West Bank as separate countries, what do you think Israel's publicly stated policy should be regarding consequences of future attacks upon them? So, you've given a lot there, Timothy, and I, I actually, I agree with, with a fair bit and disagree with, with a bit of it. And I, I'm, I'll i start with the disagreement, because I, I used to agree one, I don't want to say 100%, but I, I used to agree predominantly with the point that you're making here, which is that uh, the settlements are counterproductive, and the settlements open Israel to a lot of liability in terms of, I, I wouldn't even say the legal stuff, because that's murky at best, but uh, certainly they stoke the tension, they become the number one card that's played against Israel, and it doesn't really seem to be working. Now, I will point out that Israel has offered at a couple of occasions to freeze and or disband settlements as part of negotiations with Palestinians, and these offers have been rejected most times. So when people talk about settlements, there are two aspects here. There are some very large, very developed settlements that are really like in entire cities here with tens of thousands of people, and there are others that have like just, you know, a handful of people and could be dismantled very easily if there were a, a peace agreement that warranted that. And I, and I think Israel has, to its credit, been open to that. There was like a 20-year period up until a few years ago in which there was not a, a single new settlement developed or constructed, although I, I know there have been a few in, in recent years. Now, all of that aside, Gaza is a remarkable test case of what happens if Israel does what people want it to do and ask it to do. So Gaza in 2005, Israel unilaterally disengaged. There wasn't even a deal. There wasn't an agreement. There wasn't a negotiation. Israel just said, fine, we're done. They picked up stakes. They disbanded the settlements that were there. They pulled out and left it to the Palestinians to run the show. Can anyone say that Gaza has been better served by what happened as a result of that? And by... Gaza being better served, I mean two things. The people of Gaza, have they been better served by this? And has the overall situation, has the overall Palestinian cause or Israeli security situation benefited from that? We do not have rockets being fired from the West Bank. We do not have the security issues in the West Bank. You do not have a hard border at the West Bank that is as firm as the one in Gaza. Remember, it's Hamas that's been uh, blocking people from leaving, even people that have passports and citizenship elsewhere that have a right to enter other countries to get out. It's Hamas that's been keeping people locked in that. So when people say Gaza is an open-air prison, it's not actually Israel that is the prison warden. It is Hamas. It's the Palestinians, uh, not the individual people, but the Palestinian leadership in that part of the world. So I share that to make the point that israeli disengagement israeli ceasing to be a quote unquote occupier in gaza has made things worse so it, it's very complicated because i do not like the idea of settlements i i think that you you know your the core of your point timothy is a valid one i think they they are doing a disservice to the Israeli cause because they're just an immediate red flag to people and it it attracts the ire and the negative attention. Uh, I think some of the settlements have to be recognized as there to stay. They're too big and too established to be dismantled, to be disbanded. But you, you have to talk about the realistic situation on the ground. And that's the problem here, is that Israel is not a country where you can, and I'm talking about the whole region, but it's not a place where you can take some theoretical framework or ideological framework and apply it neatly because the situation is so dependent on the specific facts. And the facts are... That if Israel were, as you say, Timothy, and I think you're bang on in this one, if Israel were to say, we are now one state, we're pluralistic, Arabs, Israelis, uh, Arabs, Jews, you all have equal rights and citizenship, Israel ceases to be a Jewish state. It is either outbred as a people, Uh, the Jewish people are either outbred or are just going to be killed by those that don't want to share the land with Jews. So that would be uh, done. So there has to be a two-state solution. But again, the biggest barrier to a two-state solution has not been Israel or Jews. It's been Palestinians and Arabs. And this is where people fail to realize that at every step along the way, it's the Palestinians who have rejected the coexistence, rejected the two-state offer, the two-state solution. So... It's hard to come up with a situation in which reoccupying Gaza would not help this, because Israel would be able to deal with the Hamas situation. You would not have Hamas able to set up entire command centers underneath hospitals to set up these tunnel systems, all of which are absent in the West Bank. Now, I realize it's not an entirely apples to apples comparison. There are differences and distinctions between the two. But Israel's engagement in the West Bank has certainly made for a more stable and reliable security situation than what's happening in Gaza. Now, I mean, as for the idea of, you know, what should Israel's publicly stated policy be, I mean, Israel is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. There is nothing Israel can do that is ever going to be met with the world's approval. So I think Israel is right to just stop caring. I think Israel is right to just say, you know what? You are never going to like us. You're never going to respect us or accept what we do. So we're just going to do what we believe we need to do. Like Justin Trudeau this week was basically made this swipe at Israel for uh, putting civilians and children in harm's way. And Netanyahu was very right to just kind of respond and say like, Who the hell do you guys think you are? This is just patently untrue. And that's the only way to do it. I mean, you you can't expect to hold Israel to a different standard than every other country in the world and then have Israel want to like beg your permission as it responds to various things. Matt from upstate New York writes, Andrew, the war in Israel has put me in a gloomy state of mind as of late as biblical predictions have always said the final war would begin there, am I being too pessimistic, is there a reason to hope, well that might put me in a bit of a gloomy mood Matt, but you know I'll share something that's a bit more personal in terms of my my relationship with Israel, so I've been there twice, and the first time was in 2011, and it was actually a, a trip that was sponsored by Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust memorial there. They brought a, a number of Canadian journalists and I was very grateful, uh, very young and early in my career to have been invited on that. And it was I will say a a rather heavy trip because it was a week of just being steeped in Holocaust history and historiography. I saw a few of the sites, but really we were at Yad Vashem every day learning about the Holocaust. And it was a a part of history that I I knew only in in really sort of the the cursory high school history manner. And I, as a result, learned a a lot about it. And you, you learn about just the utter depravity of the human spirit throughout the Holocaust and, and just the extent of the dehumanization that took place of the Jewish people I mean one moment that I, I found so jarring I, I saw this diary which at the time Yad Vashem had just had given to it and they were still working through it so it wasn't on display yet it was a, a diary written by a, a teenage boy in different languages And I can't remember which language. It was like, you know, Russian Yiddish or Russian Hebrew Yiddish. There were a few languages in there. But the one thing that they had sort of figured out is that he would write in a language, this boy, that his sister couldn't read when he was scared because he didn't want her to come across his fear and be scared, his little sister. And that was such a a moving thing, And, and it was so commonplace that you know families were living in in horror I mean obviously everyone knows the the diary of Anne Frank but you know that was I think so relevant because that was a story that so many people lived and to learn about the horrors and depravity and evil of the Holocaust was shocking but not as shocking as the hopefulness I found In just the people of Israel. The people who live, by virtue of living there, live with a higher than an average level of risk. I mean, the whole point of the Iron Dome, this rocket interception system that Israel has, is based on the idea that rockets are a a regular part of life there. That they know they're going to be coming with enough regularity that they need this thing that's going to blow them out of the sky. All of the alert, alert systems, the warning systems, all of the things that form the Israeli security apparatus are based on this idea that in Israel, they just accept that things are going to be a bit more dangerous there than they are anywhere else. And yet it's hard to go anywhere in Israel without meeting someone that has moved there. Meeting someone that has gone there because that country meant so much to them They wanted to build a life there. So that to me is the Israeli story there. Is that this country matters. And it matters not just to the people that live there that call it home, not just to the Jewish people, also to the Arabs that have rights there that many Arabs don't have even in Arab countries and certainly rights that Jews don't have in Arab countries. But it's a country that matters to the world. And I mean, that's not to say you can't have debates and discussions about, you know, oh, well, should this country be funding this or should this weapon system be there? And oh, is the Israeli government right to do this or wrong to do this? I mean, all of those are are policy debates and discussions, which I think are, are fine for people to have. But the core question, does Israel have a right to defend itself? when its children are beheaded, when its women are raped, when its citizens are shelled, if your answer to that is no, if your answer to that is, oh, but we need a ceasefire, it's because you fundamentally value Jewish life less or don't value it at all. And I'd say it's been a remarkably cleansing experience for people in societies that... Again, we want to view as being liberal and tolerant and pluralistic to have dropped their masks. And that's the one silver lining of this all. You know, October 7th was horrible. People around the world, even those who aren't really pro Israel, condemned it generally. But in the days and weeks that followed, we have seen the masks drop. And we've seen where people truly stand on this. And uh, we've seen the ones that do not stand. With Israel, and it's become painfully apparent why. I don't know if you ever saw that uh, clip this week of Piers Morgan and Jeremy Corbyn, where it gets very tense. Jeremy Corbyn will not call Hamas a terror group. Just, he just won't. He will not call Hamas a terror group. So that, that is not, well, I, I have issues with Zionism. That That is just like blatantly and brazenly shilling for and justifying terror. Alisa Angel writes, Andrew, I hear critics say that Israel is an apartheid state. What do they mean by that? Well, I, I don't want to belabor this too, too much. I mean, basically what they're saying is that the people who are of Palestinian or Arab background, I mean, the idea that there is a, a Palestinian ethnology, ethnicity is a, a bit spurious, but uh, they're saying basically that there is a, a systematic oppression and segregation that takes place against the Palestinian people. And, you know, obviously there's a part of me, as, as a libertarian who loves the rule of law, there, there's a part of me that that dislikes that the situation in Israel has to be the way it is. Because obviously people are not given the full benefits of citizenship. And obviously there is a, a level of uh, discrimination there, by definition, If you are are born in one of these uh, territories like the West Bank and you don't have the full benefits and mobility of Israeli citizenship. So there's a part of me that hates that. But I also realize it it goes back to what I said before about how the, the practicality really does have to win out over the ideology here. You know, if you were to open the floodgates, if you were to say, fine, everyone, a citizen is a citizen is a citizen. You're accepting that Israel is no longer a Jewish state, first off, which means that you're accepting there is no right for there to be a Jewish state. And you're also then accepting that all of the desires to annihilate Israel, either through demography or just through blatant and overt violence, are, or in a way, have merit. That's basically what you're saying if you accept that argument. So... When people say Israel is an apartheid state, what they're saying is that Israel is a an oppressor. And and this is where you get a lot of these very bizarre claims from the left that this is a decolonization effort, it's an anti-oppression effort, it's an anti-colonial effort. All of these ways that they try to kind of take these weird far left radical postmodern concepts from western academia and shoehorn them into a way that accepts and justifies Hamas violence against Israel. Uh, Jeff writes, Rishi Sunak fired Suella Braverman and she is fired back saying he is a weak, a weak leader. I think she's right, and his sacking of her proved it. This comes at the same time the Supreme Court is saying his Rwanda plan is unlawful. Now he's claiming he'll tweak the plan and go ahead with it. Sunak has little credibility, especially after getting rid of Braverman. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I I touched on this a little bit before. But I will bring up, I think, the most important point here, which Mark has brought up on the show on a number of occasions. And Suella Braberman uh, brought this up in her resignation letter. And I actually am going to pull it up to uh, quote it directly here. Because uh, what she writes, which I think is, I, the, again, the most important point of this. Uh, oh, let me find it here. I thought I, I it's three pages, and I thought that... It was in one of the pages that I, I'm not finding it here. So she mentions in any case that he lost the election. And, and that is, I, I think, so key is that he was not the winner. No one elected him. He was the guy who lost to the one that people did elect. Now, that's not to say there was anything untoward about the process. The mechanism allowed the caucus to make the decision that the caucus made. But he has no mandate. And the only way that he was able to cobble together this coalition was because he had offered a bunch of key things that were kind of the red meat issues that Braverman was talking about. Like, for example, stopping the boats. Like reducing migration. Like protecting single-sex spaces. But he has simply not done that. And, you know, he's been a profound embarrassment and the worst thing is, is that there's really no one on deck. I mean, maybe Suella Braverman setting herself up to be some, you know, prospective Tory leadership candidate if they decide to uh, give, you know, Rishi Sunak the ouster down the road. Although it's probably more likely that Boris Johnson will will make a big comeback. But like, if you're a, a conservative in the UK and you're looking and saying, "Is this as good as it gets?" Uh, the answer is, sadly, yes. I mean, it, it's this so-called conservative government that's not taking migration seriously, that's ramming through the uh, online safety bill that is going full steam ahead on net zero despite uh, Rishi trying to claim that they're kind of walking it back and supporting energy independence in in a way like it's it's really not all that authentic and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, again, I'm not optimistic here and I I am not really all that hopeful that there's going to be a a resolution to this. I think it's going to be a a bit of a a flash in the pan here. Uh, She becomes a bit of a a folk hero to certain people. I forget who it was that uh, basically said she will be forgotten. I think it was Michael Howard, the former uh, Tory leader that said uh, she's basically just going to be forgotten and she'll be a footnote. And I, you know, I sadly think that is uh, probably not too, too far from the case here. Uh, we have a question from Nicola Timmerman, a Mark Stein Cruise alumna. And I will, just to put in a bit of a plug there, I'm going to be on the Mark Stein Cruise in the Caribbean in a few months' time. So if you want details on that, you can head on over to marksteincruise.com. I am looking forward to it. we got a few uh, folks on there. Leilani Dowding will be back. Ava Lardingerbrook is going to be there. Conrad Black, Michelle Bachman, uh, James Bosner, Lee Golden, I may be forgetting one or two others in uh, the meantime, but you can get all the details on the website there. Uh, But Nicola writes, Netanyahu just scolded Trudeau for his call for Israel to show restraint and making Hamas and Israel equivalent for civilian deaths. Trudeau pandering to Muslim communities much. Well, I kind of touched on that one earlier, but I, I do think you are right that the domestic portrait plays a a big role there. I mean, when you have 100,000 people in the United Kingdom lining the streets to condemn Israel, uh, taking the morally correct position on Israel all of a sudden looks less desirable than saying what it is that's going to endear yourself to those people if you're, let's say, Rishi Sunak. And I think it's the same that's true in in Canada. Justin Trudeau very early on said what he needed to say on Israel. He condemned Hamas, called it a terror group. But the longer this goes on, he starts to see that the coalition of voters that is less inclined to support Israel is probably a lot more accessible to him if he stands up and starts equivocating and condemning Israel like he's been doing now. Toby Pilling writes, are some right-wing conspiracy theorists now acting as useful idiots for the Islamists by questioning the motives of the Israelis? Surely they excuse the evil of Hamas. So this has been a a bit of a a, a sore spot for me, Toby, in in the last few weeks. And, uh, you know, Israel is a red line for me. I shared why it matters to me personally, but I think there are a number of reasons why it matters to the world, and I've been you know clear on that in previous shows. But I think you get two things here. Number one, there seems to be this contrarian impulse among a lot of people on the right, where if you know certain people are saying one thing, they think, well, maybe I don't want to say that anymore, and they go against it. So if you know bad people are taking Israel's side, I think there's a, a bit of a contrarian impulse among some people, to therefore find that, okay, maybe Israel is not actually the good guy after all. I I think that only applies in a couple of cases, but but it is legitimately a factor. I also think people misunderstand isolationism. A lot of people, I think, take what is a very legitimate view, which is that we are not, whether you're American or Canadian or whatever, the country that should solve everyone else's problems in the world. And I think that that idea of disengaging, which we certainly see in, in discussions about Ukraine and Russia, is a legitimate one. I, I get people saying, this this isn't our war. Why do we have to give money? Why do we have to be there? But I, I see a lot of people on Israel use that isolationist excuse as a rationale to kind of just avoid having an opinion on it or avoid uh, defend kind of defending an opinion on it. People that say, well, this isn't our problem. I don't want, you know, American soldiers there, Canadian soldiers. There. Well, who's talking about putting that? Israel can defend itself. We're not talking about even arming Israel. We're, we're just talking about fundamentally the question of right and wrong. Do you support Israel's right to defend itself? Because a lot of what's happening in Israel has to do with recognition. And, and a lot of the symbolism matters. I mean, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that is symbolic and practical. I mean, it's practical in the sense that you need to, you know, decide where your embassy is going to be and where you're going to situate your diplomatic staff. but but that is a, a symbolic question where it's not about, you know, putting boots on the ground or funding a foreign war to just say, yes, we are going to not put our thumb in Israel's eye by saying that we do not respect your capital, which you have a right as a sovereign country. To determine. And and that is such an easy, 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 low-hanging fruit issue. And Trump has made it so easy for everyone else in the world. Trump moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That is an easy thing. Other countries should say, okay, fine. So that is an example of, of where a lot of people just do not want to engage in the world around them. Uh, And I think that this is where we have to take a stand on this. And, you know, look, I I have no skin in the game. I'm not supporting Israel because I'm Jewish. I'm not supporting Israel because I have family there. I'm supporting Israel because it is the right thing to do. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, my support amounts to a hill of beans. It's not to say that if I put some, you know, Israel flag emoji up on my Twitter profile that, you know, Hamas will lose the war. It's not that. Uh, And I don't do the whole flag emoji thing on Twitter anyway. But it's that there is something to... People being able to take a stand and say, this is what right is. And, and if we can't do that as a, as a society, I mean, when, when Mark talks about the future is not just about Jews, it's about all of us. When he talks about these trends and these protests, I think there's something very key to that. Israel and how people and societies respond to Israel is a bit of a barometer, for other trends in society. So when you see public opinion turning on Israel, public opinion turning on Jews, when you see people that are going through and trying to do their own 2023 version of Kristallnacht by vandalizing Jewish-owned businesses, by harassing people in their houses, by looking for mezuzahs on doors, these are very real things that we need to pay attention to that tell us a lot about society that are broader than just this one particular conflict here. We have a question from Josh Passel, who writes, uh, Good afternoon, Andrew. Yesterday, Justin Trudeau fixed his mouth to say these words. The human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza is heart-wrenching, especially the suffering we see in and around the Al Chifa Hospital. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. The world is watching on TV and social media. The world is witnessing this killing of women, of children, of babies. This has to stop. My question, is Trudeau such human garbage that he, yes, is the answer to that question, but I'll carry on, that he actually believes Israelis are hunting women, children, and babies like some kind of frenzied Elmer Fudd during Wabbit season? Or is he petrified that the nearly 2 million Muslims in Canada are a greater threat to his personal safety than the barely 300,000 Jews? follow up question who would know better that the world is watching on tv and social media than prime minister true blodgery thank you and my best wishes well thank you for that josh and again we have talked about this a little bit but i you you do spark one interesting uh, aside on this that i'll offer which is that when hamas was claiming that israel had bombed that hospital uh, a few weeks back that baptist hospital It was a claim that was completely unsubstantiated by any evidence whatsoever. And anyone should have known it was something we should have approached with skepticism. But it was a claim that Hamas made that the media picked up unquestioningly that 500 people were killed in an airstrike on a hospital. Now, the real story was that a Hamas rocket misfired, landed in the parking lot beside the hospital, left a bit of a pothole there, and caused zero casualties whatsoever. So like literally none of the story was true. But Justin Trudeau's foreign minister basically accepted the Hamas talking point and has still to this day never really retracted or apologized for it she had tweeted out that you know this attack on the hospital was unconscionable she didn't blame Israel for it so maybe she had a little bit of cover there in the sense that oh well I didn't say Israel was behind it but whomever attacked the hospital but there was no hospital attack we are literally talking about a fender like the, like the the war equivalent of a fender bender in the parking lot that involved one car and that car was being driven by Hamas. But when your worldview is oriented around Israel being the bad guys, you will view all of this through that lens. And that's precisely what's happening here. Uh, We have a question from Eric Dale who writes, Andrew and fellow club members, maybe our problems in politics stem from the assumption that people want freedom when it's probably closer to the truth that they simply want a dictatorship that they agree with, it's hard not to notice a rising demand for authoritarianism. Politicians who demand censorship are elected with greater margins of victory, while ideas of free speech are marginalized and verboten. Big tech regularly sides with various governments, government demands to exercise greater responsibility. Will we live to see the extinguishment of liberty? Well, it's not the happiest question to end on, but it's, I guess, big picture, and maybe I can try to put some optimistic flair on it at the end of my, uh, my answer here, Eric. But So you're touching on something that I've wanted to write a book about. And I've actually, I'm working on another book right now. Actually, this week, I'm spending a fair bit of time on it. So I haven't been as up on the headlines as perhaps I should have been. This is perhaps the book I'll write after once I can figure out the approach that I want to take to it. But throughout the COVID era, it became abundantly clear that freedom is not desirable to most people. Certainly to a lot of people, whether it's to most, maybe there's a, a bit of a debate about. But some people want, as you argue there, a dictatorship they agree with. I think other people want to completely abdicate their responsibility. People want other people to make their decisions for them, their decisions on what vaccines to get, on you know how much carbon to emit, their decisions on where to live, on how to live, and on what to say. And it's a lot easier for people to live a life that is within these constraints. For example, this is a very stupid example, but I'll give it to you anyway, because it came up as I was reflecting on this topic. If you are at a restaurant and you're given a menu and the menu has five things on it and you're asked, what do you want for dinner? It's easier to make that decision than if you're at home And you have decided you're going to order from delivery and you can order anything, any restaurant in the city, anything on the menu. And if you don't know what you want, you actually have no idea what to get. So your freedom limits your potential, or at least your perception of your potential in that moment. Whereas if someone else narrows your options for you, someone brings you to a restaurant, sits you down and says, these are your options. uh, it's, It's a lot easier. It's not freer, but it's easier. And the COVID era saw this mass transfer of autonomy and authority and sovereignty from the individual to the state. And instead of, in most cases, people rejecting that and pushing back against that, people welcomed it. And people said, regulate me more, govern me more. And that was the most difficult part as someone that was critical of the lockdowns and the mandates and the vaccine passports. I mean, sure, you have some examples of people speaking up against it, the truckers in Canada, but they were a demographic minority. The people that pushed back against these heavy-handed measures were dwarfed by the people that welcomed them in with open arms. So generally speaking, people do not want freedom. I mean, it's that old uh, poem on the Statue of Liberty, you know, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. How many of them are yearning to be free truly? And I think that's where the issue needs to really come. That's the fight. The fight is making people want freedom so that you have an army of people willing to take a stand for it and willing to recognize and reject when it's being taken away. That does it for me for today. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll get this up on Stein Online in the next little while here. But uh, truly hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. Mark will be back as soon as he's able. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Clubland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.